Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, markets and minimum wages. So, Richard, uh, you and I have talked on the show before about this sort of uh, populist moment that we find ourselves in in American politics that talk about income inequality, sort of a pervasive class conflict narrative. And one of the ways that we're seeing that play out in practice is in pushes to increase the minimum wage. President Obama's talked about it at the federal level, and you've got a number of state and local governments that have been dealing with this as well, most visibly Seattle, uh, which has hiked its minimum wage to $15 an hour. You had a coalition of business groups trying to fight that with a ballot referendum, which has now failed. So let's start at the beginning here. We, I'm sure, have people listening to us who have never heard the argument against the minimum wage, which is much more pervasive in economic circles than it is amongst the general public. So for the layperson who's never been exposed to that line of argument, give them the basic reasoning for opposing okay. well, minimum look, wage the, the, the populist furor is really quite extraordinary. And uh, for those of who want to witness it, some of the clips on the show that I did on public television with a man named Nick Hanauer uh, shows it. But the basic argument is as follows. Um, generally speaking, there are only two ways that you can advance personally. One is through plunder and the other is through cooperation. Uh, the first is nice for the guy, maybe who does the plundering, but bad for everybody else. So the good libertarian and virtually everybody else believes that unbridled private aggression for personal advantage is simply off the table as an acceptable social strategy. So that then leaves cooperation. And so the first question is, can a poor man contract with a rich man and leave himself better off? And the people who are essentially in favor of the minimum wage will say that there are a certain set of outcomes, say below $15 in a place like Seattle, which don't really meet that condition, there's a form of exploitation. So what they want to do is to essentially constrain the upper guy, the employer, from offering less that sum. And at the same time, they forget that they're constraining the employee. He could no longer earn that particular sum. Uh, so then the choices turn out to be two. What the employer can do is to yield to the statute, suck in his gut, and pay the $15 or more. Or what the employer can do is to say, I'd rather do without I will pay $20 an hour to a higher class worker with greater education, or I'll buy myself some machine, or I'll outsource it to another state where, in fact, the labor costs are cheaper, or I'll send this thing offshore. Any one of those alternatives reduces the opportunities for those people who are in desperate states. And the question then is, how do you calculate the probabilities and the odds, simply looking at the person on the bottom? And essentially what happens is, uh, the more you raise the minimum wage above the market wage, the more devastating the effects, because the more likely it is that the employer will take one of those alternatives. So if you look at this solely from the point of view of an employee, what happens is the minimum wage law gives him two states of the world, a probability that he's going to get the higher wage and another probability that he's going to get nothing at all. And you have to assume when you take the expected value of those two probabilities, it's going to leave the worker better off, which in turns to be a very difficult assumption, particularly if the minimum wage is quite a bit above the current market wage, which this person is happening. 
Second part of the argument is, what about the employer in all of this? Uh, generally speaking, if you're doing a social calculus, if there's a loss to the employer, that has to count as much as a gain to the worker. And what happens is if you put the minimum wage law in, all scenarios turn out to be bad from the employer's point of view. Um, if he goes to one of the substitutes, by definition, it is more costly to him than the previous arrangement um, that it turned out that he had. If the business is driven out because it can't satisfy that constraint, it's going to be totally catastrophic. If the profits are reduced, the share value goes down. If it's a publicly held corporation, some of those shares are held by pension funds, many of which have poor workers or not so wealthy workers in their ranks. So the argument against the minimum wage, quite simply, is that you're sure to shrink the pie, and you're very unsure that you're going to benefit of the people that you want. And so what you don't do is engage in activities where you spend a huge amount of money to enforce a minimum wage law, and it is very costly to enforce. Uh, the books on this you know, are a couple of inches thick when you try to figure out what counts as an hour, what counts as a payment, and all the rest of that stuff. But you leave this to the market, and then if you care about trying to help people whose income level seems to be too low, you use something like an earned income tax credit, uh, which basically calibrates the amount of assistance to the total amount of earnings and will do less to interfere with market processes. And so this is not an argument trying to favor the privileged few. It's an argument of trying to get people into the system. And the hope is if they start with a job that pays very little money, they will learn enough skills and develop enough social connections and awareness that they could gain promotions and become self-sufficient members of society. So putting a high minimum wage law for many people, particularly youths, will knock out the lowest rung of the ladder and leave them worse off. And so you have to be aware not only of what you hope to achieve, but also of the unintended consequences of what you will in fact achieve. What about the argument from anecdote that you get sometimes? You, you hear this a lot, and I know that you heard this in response to your appearance on this television show, that the the analog is, you know, you guys can expand all your economic theory, but we have this real-world example, the Henry Ford example, right, that Henry Ford had to provide a wage in order to to be high enough in order for his employees to buy the product, and that this was something that was economically doable, and it also represented kind of a higher understanding of the the social contract between employer and worker. Why doesn't that work, Richard, as public policy? Well, because it's thoroughly confused in terms of what it is that you need. Let's mention a couple of difficulties with it. One is it was the unilateral action of Henry Ford. This was not a minimum wage law. And what he did is, in effect, is he offered people when he was rapidly expanding production, $5 a day, which back in the day, you know, 1920 or so, was thought to be a very substantial sum. So if in fact you believe that markets work and you think that there's a shortage of supply, your prediction is that employers will bid up wages. That phrase, employers will bid up wages, is not part of the vocabulary of the typical defender of the minimum wage law. Now let's suppose what you did is in the 1920s, you had a minimum wage law and you had somebody out there who was extremely concerned about the welfare of the poor and they decide to set it at $6 an hour. Uh, that's going to wreck Henry Ford's plans because he's going to have to now cut back because he's made one judgment and the system has made another judgment. So it seems very clear that what the example starts to show is that if, in fact, you leave it to the market, the market will bid up the wages. The second question is, why are you doing this? And what happens is the customary explanation is to give his workers enough money so they could buy Ford cars. Well, think 
think about the following proposition. What fraction of Ford cars are bought by employees? It's minuscule. What happens is when they get those wages, they buy a market basket of goods. They could buy a Chevrolet if they want. And in fact, if Henry Ford wants to sell him one of these cars, what he'll do is he says, my selling costs are lower to my employees, so I could knock down the price a little bit and still make a profit. But unless and until you can justify the higher wage in terms of the overall productivity, you'll never do it. Um, what sense does it make to raise your wages from 4 to $5 a day in Henry Ford's turn if, in fact, the only thing you could be competent of is that 1% of that increase will be spent on your products? The other 99 cents is going to be spent on something else. So what drives essentially higher wages is higher productivity. So the object of a legal system is to get the barriers down to productivity. The major barrier, which became very clear at that time, was Henry Ford's having to negotiate with unions where the work rules in effect are necessary to keep the union population satisfied. It's a complicated cartel type of arrangement and you have to divide the spoils. And if you put that in place, instead of having high wages driving new employment, you get General Motors, which in 1979 had a half a million workers in 2007 and 2008. Uh, very bad union contracts drove them down to about 41, 42,000 workers. So you have to understand what's going on. And people simply do not understand that Henry Ford is an explanation of why markets work, not an explanation as to why minimum wage laws or union protections are needed. Does the level of application matter any, Richard? By, by which I mean sometimes you'll hear conservatives make the process argument instead of the substantive one. They'll, they'll essentially plead federalism. You know, it's fine for the states and the local governments to do what they want with wages, but let's not get Washington involved in setting that policy. But the question it would seem – obviously the danger of uh, the federal policy is how widespread it is, that it affects everybody. But it would seem to me that the, the countervailing danger at the state and local level is that any increase would be easier to move away from. So uh, on the merits, do you consider the state and local increases more or less dangerous than the federal? Well, it's clear if you're talking about danger, a lot of it depends upon the amount. That is, you can go to Seattle and get yourself $15 by way of a minimum wage with people outside City Hall and a unanimous council, rationalizing it by writing, you know, fair intelligent pros, which just happens, in my view, to be wrong. At the federal level, you're at 1010. So if you're trying to figure out social dislocations, which do you worry about more? A $10 national wage or a pockmarked situation where some states are at 15, some are at 13, some cities may go even more. That's an argument with respect to the second best. And generally speaking, the usual answer that most of us has given is the one implied in your question, uh, that exit rights really matter under federalism, and you'd rather have competing states competing cities do it than a national government do it. Uh, so that on our balance, what's going to happen is Seattle goes this way. Um, it may well be that very little will happen if most of its workers are already over the $15 limit. But if there are a large number of industries, you know, bellboys or busboys on the one hand or dry cleaning people or various kinds of messengers or janitorial services that don't command those wages, what you'd expect is to see some of those people really hurt. And there's something about this which is kind of Sad. The people who are most vulnerable to the minimum wage are the people who are most vulnerable to any form of economic dislocation. And what Aaron Director said famously a long time ago is probably true. He says, when you look at protectionist legislation, think first that what you're protecting is something close to the middle class, not protecting the bottom. 
because there's no question if you're a person who could command $25 or $30 in the market, the move of a minimum wage from 7 to 15 isn't going to affect you all that much. But if you're sitting there at $11 an hour and they go to 15, chances are you're going to be more likely to lose the 11 than to gain the 4. Uh, and so therefore, you are more vulnerable. It is what happens is so much of this, when in the comments is, they look at me and they say, you have no empathy with respect to anybody who's poor. And the argument is, since you don't have any empathy, which they presume rather than prove, it means that anything you say is going to work against these people. So you get the kind of really sad, almost, it makes you almost come to tears that people think that the reason that Richard Epstein is in favor of the abolition of the minimum wage is he wants to pay his family health $2.50 an hour and thinks that he can get away with it under those circumstances. These are people who've never been in the household help market in New York City, believe me. <laughs> Richard, obviously, listening to you here, the the best kind of increase in the minimum wage is the one that's not legally banned, the one that occurs naturally through markets. In other words, rather than passing a law, you just let economic growth naturally push these mm -hmm. wages upward. There are a lot of people nowadays, however, who argue that the prospect of that is compromised by any number of factors, automation, technology, offshoring, illegal immigrants taking jobs. How confident are you that we could see market forces pushing wages on the low end of the spectrum up substantially in the future? And, and what's the best way as a matter of public policy for us to get there? Well, I, I think the stuff that you mentioned about te technology and automation and so forth has been an issue around since I could remember. I still remember reading pieces in the New York Times magazine section in 1956 saying that automation is going to do away with all those telephone operators who put the one thing into another so you could connect the call. And now you need every person in America to be a telephone operator if you hadn't automated that particular system and released human capital to other stuff. So all of that stuff about technology and automation will shift the distribution of the world workforce, um, but it certainly will not result in systematic unemployment. It will create new opportunities, even as old positions are no longer good. The real difficulty with respect to the repeal of the minimum wage is this is not the only statute which affects the market, and probably on ultimate balance is not the most serious statute. So just compare it, for example, to the Obamacare provision, which says that once you decide to hire somebody for more than 30 hours, you have to either get them very expensive of health insurance or pay a $2,000 fine to the government uh, so that they could get something in a private market, which for all we know today may not emerge. Well, what that has done is led to a huge decrease in the amount of full-time employment at the bottom end. Because if you try to price it out, even at $15, and you, what you announce in effect is that you're putting a $2,000 penalty on that, you know, that's 133 hours worth of labor um, that you have to provide. And it means that you now can't do that. If you use your old coverage plan, which was essentially not very good coverage, but better than nothing at all, that's not going to satisfy it as well. So what you see is a vast increase in part-time labor. There was a nice piece, I think it was by a man named Zuckerman in the Wall Street Journal who said, you know, you could look at the numbers and see the total number of people employed, but what you have to understand is that all the increases in part-time jobs and there's a decrease in full-time employment, much of which is contributable to putting that $30 or an hour minimum, and to other kinds of situations, which again, our part-time employees are exempted from certain kinds of uh, benefits that are given to full-time employees. So unless you basically go through the whole system, figure out what the obstacles are, and get rid of them, 
you're never going to work. Now, people said, this means you want people to die of deadly fumes in the workplace. But I'm going to go back to the 19th century distinction, which was that when you're dealing with matters of health and safety, there's always a stronger case for government regulation it is if you're simply dealing with wages, um, where in effect the market system works much better than it does with respect to latent hazards, toxic places in the workplace, and so forth. So I'm really quite opposed to trying to put all of these things on labor markets in terms of prices, in terms of conditions, and think that if you remove one of them and add another one in, it's not going to do all that much good. But I think you have to be much more careful in the way in which you evaluate self and safety issues. It is just simply tragic as far as I I can tell that the number of people who say that you're against the minimum wage law, so you must be against all environmental regulation of pollution. It's one of the world's classic non sequiturs. Final question, Richard. I always like to close, if we can, on classical liberal first principles. Sure. Most, most libertarians don't like the minimum wage, uh, almost all really. Most libertarians aren't thrilled with the way that the social safety net is currently constructed. And this is always the criticism that folks on the right have nothing to offer the poorest Americans. In your judgment, you mentioned the earned income tax credit earlier. What's legitimate or productive for government to do for those folks beyond allowing the market to work? What would you be comfortable with in terms of direct government action? Well, I mean, I, the first one I think has to do is to understand letting the market work, whether or not this is a small change or a large change in overall right. behavior. It's a huge change in behavior. One of the real ironies about the progressives in the first third of the 20th century is that where they purported to be masters of social sciences, they never actually looked at real numbers. And when I wrote my book, uh, How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution, what I did is, you know, got out a little chart to figure out what real income increases and real longevity increases were between 1900 and 1930, which was the supposed dark age of all of this stuff. And they were astonishing. You know, just beyond belief, you know, income close to doubling in some cases, massive numbers of women moving into the workforce, um, longevity moving from about 46 to 61 years in a 30-year period, you know, after being stagnated for several hundred years at 40. So don't undersell what it is. The thing about markets is if you let them run and people know that they're going to run for the duration, it's a real powerful kind of things. What always fails is we're going to run an experiment for markets that's going to last a year. If it works, we'll continue. Well, people have to make long-term investments, and you guarantee the failure of a system if, in fact, the framework which requires stable expectations is not guaranteed at the outset. So I think one ought to do that. The second thing I think that one has to seriously think about is a revitalization of private charitable help of one kind or another. This is uniformly scorned today in the United States. But in fact, if you go back and you look at the peak of laissez-faire where there was no government involvement in these activities, friendly societies, informal insurance societies, church arrangements, uh, voluntary hospital stuff and so forth, they were Absolutely the order of the day. And what, for example, to take just the hospital example, if in fact you say to a hospital, you can take or turn away anybody on any ground on which you wish. You could do it on race. You could do it on religion. You could do it on sex. You could do it on disease condition. What will happen is the hospitals will open up and they'll experiment. And by God, you'll get a lot of healthcare coming out of that system. And huge numbers of our voluntary institutions founded in that period because they knew they had the ability to retrench and withdraw. In the modern days, you have to worry about the question of can you support it by government money. And here I think it's very important to distinguish between the Obama solution and what I think is the market solution. 
I'm very strongly in favor of charitable contributions for the creation of these public goods because it gives you two things. One is it gives you some degree of government funding, but it gives you no degree of government control. So if you want to set up a hospital for X, Y, and Z group only by race, religion, and so forth, be my guest and we'll match it. And what will typically happen is you may start that way, like the Catholic hospitals often did, and then you open up much more broadly to other individuals when you realize you could actually do some good. Uh, the Obama administration doesn't like this, so they're trying to cap the charitable deduction in order to force things into direct public grants. And the moment you do correct government situation, it's like having the IRS run everything today. And in fact, one of the reasons why people like myself are so frightened about the implications of Obamacare is that so much of the certification is going to be done through an institution whose pro political proclivities seem to be all too pronounced, uh, governed by an attorney general who has not the slightest interest in doing anything except attacking Republicans. And, you know, I'm not so sure that the Republicans wouldn't reciprocate if they were in power. So decentralized assistance through a more robust uh, situation with respect to the charitable activities would be fine. And paradoxically, the only way you're going to be able to get the charities to work is to withdraw all of the free government support that comes uh, provided for because once a charity tries to discipline people to whom it gives assistance by saying, yes, we'll give you health care, but we expect you not to drink or something of that sort, uh, there's always a tendency to try to go into a government system, which will give the same set of benefits without the strings attached because of the political pressure. So I think there are things that can be done. And generally speaking, what the classical liberal wants to do is to think of the charitable and the assistance market, all of which I'm strong in favor of supporting as a decentralized Hayekian type operation rather than as a centralized progressive government controlled operation, which is the way the Democrats today are trying to move the overall system. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.